What the heck, Freddie Mercury? I mean, I, I kind of feel even more in love with him than I was before. Fun fact. Middle initials can be a complicated business. Hmm. Seems hard to dispute. <laughs> I had a lot of trouble, to be honest with you. Is this a is, strong claim? This is kind of a hodgepodgey fact, so I had a lot of trouble coming up with the Middle fun fact. initials can be a complicated, a complicated business. business. So here's the thing. Like, people's first names tend to be, you know, first and last names. I mean, they might change them legally, but they tend to be kind of legit. Middle initials are much squirrelier. Hmm. I wouldn't... Let me give you an I mean, example. I think of them as fairly uh derivable from the middle names <laughs> no no so let me give you let me you would think but let me give you an example former u.s president and american civil war general ulysses s grant you're familiar with him yes yeah not personally so no. his actual name well yeah no well, that would be surprising <laughs> and impressive his actual name was hiram ulysses grant okay but when he was applying for college his dad wrote to their senator and the senator, or a congressman actually, I think, and the congressman wrote to West Point to like advocate for him and wrote Ulysses S. Grant. And I think the S was for his mother's maiden name. Mm, okay. But it just stuck. Right. And then they were like, oh, yeah, no, it's me. I'm the, I'm the Ulysses S. Grant guy. Yeah, That's who we because he got in. About. Yeah. Dude. And S doesn't stand for anything. So when he was in school, they were like, U.S. Grant, we're going to call you Sam because Uncle Sam is also U.S. Okay. <laughs> Sure. So suddenly he goes from Hiram slash Ulysses to Sam because of a typo or like a mistake someone wrote on a on a paper. Right. And I feel like in middle initials or something, it's a little more, I mean, people, and people play around with initials a lot, like especially in show business and stuff, you get people who are like, aren't super stoked about their first name. So they end up being like P.T. Barnum yeah, or whatever. Yeah, totally. So so based on this, I was like, well, what other types of situations do people end up with middle initials that either don't stand for anything or aren't their actual middle initials or whatever? What other types of, of situations might you find? And I thought I would c- confine myself exclusively to people that people would have heard of. Ideally. that I mean, that's just yeah. helpful for, yeah. for everyone. So Harry S. Truman, hmm. also a former U.S. president. Another U.S. president with a middle initial that's S that is sketchy. Also S. Also S. The S in Harry S. Truman didn't stand for anything. This is one of those, like, uh, he wasn't given a middle initial when he was born and then a no, form no, required No, no, he was. <laughs> he was given a middle initial when he was born, but his parents had two grandparents whose, whose names were Ship and Solomon, and they didn't couldn't decide which one to name him for. So as a compromise, they just put S. Okay, so he really was S, but it didn't stand for any. But it didn't stand for anything. Thing longer than S. He was just Harry S. Truman. Harry S. Truman. So it's not even like. So then, do you style it with a period? Is it S dot? Truman? I think it's S no dot. I feel like it's S no dot. Yeah. So so that's another situation. A third situation. You're familiar, I assume, especially now with uh, with author J.K. Rowling. I am familiar with her and her work. Okay. So her actual legal name is Joanne Rowling, which is great. J, Joanne, makes sense. Where the heck's the K? Her publisher, when she was originally publishing Harry Potter, was apparently very sexist. Oh, no. And thought that and wanted her to use two initials because they didn't want boy readers to think that a woman had written it so then they wouldn't want to buy it. So she chose K for her grandmother, Kathleen. Wait, so she didn't have, she says she didn't have a middle initial at all. She just didn't have a middle name. Many uh, people don't have middle names. Yeah, it happens. 
Yeah. Meh. I mean, like I'm that kind of thing always makes me grumpy because it's one of those stories of like it's a story of how awful you know show business and people in power can be. But then also the books were so financially successful that then I know that some people would take that as evidence that they were right that they should, <laughs> that they did the right thing. Yeah, <laughs> and, now, and now I mean you know she's not she's not calling herself Joanne Rowling now. She's still going by J.K. <laughs> yeah. And she's doing all right. Isn't she like yeah. the like number two? I think she's like the richest. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's a billion. She's like a literal billionaire. Yeah. So Michael J. Fox. Okay. Yeah. What name is more iconic than Michael J. Fox? Like that is a name. Yeah, that that is the name that first came to mind when I thought celebrity who goes with an initial. Right. So the J is has nothing to do with Michael J. Fox's actual name. The problem that he encountered was that when he did his first acting role, which I think he was a kid, right? Uh, there was already a Michael Fox. There was a Michael Fox. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And he didn't like his real middle initial, which is A. Stands for Andrew. Michael A. Fox. No, that's good. So he'd be Michael. He's In an alternate reality, we all know about Family Ties starring Michael A. Fox. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. Back to the Future with Michael A. Fox. Doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. He wouldn't have got those roles. He never would have succeeded. No one wants to hire yeah. Michael A. Fox. Nobody. So I have a question for you about Jay. Okay. I feel like that's a pretty good middle initial. It's also my middle initial. Is that just, <laughs> is that just my, my well, instinctual bias? Here, here's the problem. I cannot help you decide that. Do you know why? Is Jay your middle initial also? It's also my <laughs> middle initial. I feel like so. that means you can help me solve it. And it is, in fact, an awesome Middle I mean, initial. J is clearly the best middle initial. Yeah. I, I mean, you got Michael J. Fox. I feel like there's yeah. a fair number of whatever J. I yeah. feel like that's a good I feel like that's a good one. I feel like if someone has J as a middle name initial, they're more likely to use that initial statistically, yeah. according to the department of my factual claim <laughs> just made off the top of my head. Of you and me. Yeah. <laughs> the department of people whose middle initials might be J. Yeah. So, do you, are you familiar with David X. Cohen, Futurama executive producer and head writer? He does stick out in the credits of Futurama, and that X is highly suspicious. Yeah, and you should be suspicious because his real name is David S. Cohen, but again, there was someone else already registered with SAG, and he went with X because he thought it sounded sci-fi. I mean, it, it, he was right. And it, it does. does. It does. <laughs> to the point that I was suspicious. If it was David X. Cohen on a non-sci-fi show that wasn't silly, I might have been right. less critical of it. Not a lot of X names out there. It's basically like, what, Xavier and Xerxes. I don't know that a lot of people in modern times are being named. Maybe in, in Iran. I don't know if Xerxes is a popular name. Speaking of Futurama, Philip J. Fry, classic oh, yeah. J initial. That's like they're, they're, they're making up a trope. It's like, oh, someone's going to use the middle initial. It's going to be Jay. You know, we're, one of my favorite Jays is uh, is Homer J. Simpson. Oh, yeah. Again, classic. And what I love about that Jay is that there's an episode, I don't know if you've seen it, where he finally decides that he really wants to know. He doesn't know what his middle what his middle name is. Right. So he goes on this crazy adventure, finds his mom who ran away from his dad, you know, when he was a kid, finally gets to ask her, hey, by the way, what does Jay f- stand for? J stands for J. It's J A Y. <laughs> Homer J Simpson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Incredible. Very punny. Yeah. My my favorite one when searching for this though is the situation of Benoit Mandelbrot. 
Benoit Mandelbrot. I know of the Mandelbrot, uh, like fractals. Right. So the the discoverer of the the coiner of the term fractal and discoverer of the Mandelbrot set was a guy named Benoit Mandelbrot. Believable. Yeah, but at some point in his life, he changed his name to Benoit B. Mandelbrot. Okay. And if you read his obituary. In every place I could find it, they call out that the B specifically does not stand for anything. Well, I'm changing name. Yeah. But there is also a very common misunderstanding or meme or joke or something that the B in Benoit B. Mandelbrot stands for Benoit B. Mandelbrot. <laughs> thus okay. making him making a fractal, a fractal mm-hmm. which I think is the best. I'm going to go with that. So even if there's no evidence at all, I think that that is... That is my reality. Is I mean, what else is it going to be? Ben, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. It has to be. So I'm just saying out there, everybody, if you see a middle initial and it seems a little suspicious, it very well could be. So on the theme yeah. of naming names. Oh, I'm excited. And parts we of We all names. know that I love names and parts of names. This seems set up, but I have a last name fact. No. This, this, this does fact. seem set up. Now, no one's going to believe us. No one's gonna yeah, by it. the way, thank you for correcting it to surname. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's why, well, I mean, we could get into, <laughs> I won't, because it would be an entire, not just an entire show, but we'd do an entire <laughs> podcast about the complexity around names and all the assumptions that we make. Oh, yes. No, we're going to come back to this corner. Name corner. But yeah. name corner part two, fun fact. 17th century astronomer Galileo is often referred to by just his first name since he was born before surnames i've always wondered about that because people just refer to it as like oh yeah galileo invented this thing and then they'll be like galileo galilei though right so yeah. galilei was traditional family name of his family uh that sounds a lot like a last name it sounds a lot like a last name but yeah at the time in italy when a child was born you didn't register a last name for them and so nobody had, and this is like kind of the default, obviously, through, you know, centuries and millennia or whatever, people, people's names were what they said their names were. There wasn't a central government that said, okay, your name is this, here's your insur- social security card that says this is your name. Um, people's names were- No with, national ID. There was no national ID in Italy no. in the 17th century. But there were some families, not all families had this, some families would have a traditional family name. And so you could, if your family was known. Were they fancy families? Well, they were fancy enough that they'd had a known uh, person uh, named Galilei that they had been sort of mm. named their someone family. Someone had already else, someone else had already like put some, put some weight on that. Yeah. Yeah. So it had become known enough that the people who were descendants of this person would refer to oh but basically our family is going to be called this thing to remind you or maybe point out that we're part of this family but a lot of families didn't have traditional names or maybe they did have traditional names but people wouldn't necessarily use that to to there wouldn't be a unique identifier necessarily for you and the in italy at that time as was the case in most countries up to a certain point you would name you would have a first name which is what you would identify as and then you would use your last name or your surname would be basically a clarifier so if galileo was from rome he might have been galileo romano or at least that's how he would introduce himself or if he was son of beppo he might have introduced himself as galileo de beppo or if he was a blacksmith he might have said galileo ferrari just like you basically would make your name like your does ferrari mean blacksmith ferrari means blacksmith Uh, fun fun fact that's a a fun fact all on its own because i did not know that 
Yeah. So do we know? Do we know which? Do we know which relative of Galileo they that puts him like enough awesomeness on the name where we we call him that? Yes, we do. Apparently, it was Galileo Bonaiuti, a physician, university teacher, and politician uh, who was lived a few hundred years, like three hundred years ish before, um, and who was well known and successful enough that the family got named after him. Well, why why wouldn't it be Galileo Bonaiuti then? Because the Galileo Bonaiuti, just like Galileo Galilei, their name was Galileo. And the oh, Bonaiuti oh. or the Galilei or the Romano or the Ferrari or whatever. Yeah, so you wouldn't be you wouldn't be correctly registering who you were honoring. Right, because Bonaiuti, I'm not sure what that meant, but like Bonaiuti was not part of that famous physician's name. Like in a it formal some, sense, it, yeah, it, was it was a describer. It was, it was a descriptive yeah. of him in the way that Galileo was descriptive of Galileo and Romano would be descriptive of a person from Rome and De Beppo would be descriptive of somebody who is son of Beppo and so on. And yeah, you can yeah, see yeah. the same thing in the case of like Leonardo da Vinci. So Leonardo was from Vinci. So he would introduce himself as Leonardo da Vinci if he wasn't in Vinci. But if he was in Vinci, Leonardo's a really common name. So if he's like, yeah, I'm I'm Steve from Vancouver, and you're in Vancouver, <laughs> someone looks at you like, you're an idiot. It's like... Like, dude, I know. What? Yeah, okay, well, there's like 9 million Steves in Vancouver. How does that help? That does not help me. And so he would have, if he was in Vinci, he would have introduced himself in a different way. And so Leonardo was his given name. His actual, his name was Leonardo. And then he would describe, give enough a qualifier so that it would be clear which Leonardo which to me is super delightful. Like you get to pick like, oh yeah, I'm like, am I Alan of Steam Clock? Am I Alan of Vancouver? Am I Alan of the Pike family or whatever? Like you kind of, the idea you can sort of, you know, I don't know. That's, for some reason that's kind of fun. The looseness of that is sort of romantic to me. But as fun as it was, it made it kind of a pain in the butt to collect taxes and keep records and make sure that people did their mandatory military service and things like that. So in the 1600s, laws were made requiring that parents document an actual specific surname for each child that was born, fossilizing the last names as they were at that time. And so the people who are Ferrari last name today, their surname is Ferrari today, are people who are descendants or had basically chained, their name came from people in a chain for people who happened to be blacksmiths when the law was passed. Because the names were changed around, and then one day the government was like, enough with the changing names. Well, so related fun fact. Uh, fun fact, that did not apply to Jewish people for a long time after that. Oh, interesting. So, so even in the, because yeah. in, the, in the 1600s, Italy was one of the last countries to to require that lockdown, basically. Right. So Jews whose families were living in Europe didn't in 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 especially like in the german speaking countries didn't have that happen until the late 18th century oh interesting when austria passed a law requiring the jews to adopt surnames and because of that because previously jews had used son of daughter of uh, yeah, kind of thing yeah. in the same way that iceland still does today sure. there are countries in in the middle east that still do today and, and i think russia often does today all those kind of things so in, in iceland that's the legal naming system which is really interesting but at any rate just to, like some people don't necessarily 
like just for anyone who is not familiar with Icelandic naming, which is awesome, um, that you have like, okay, somebody's name is Ragnar Grimson. And like Grimson in that case reads to us like a sort of familial name, but Grimson is just son of Grim. Right. So uh, Bjork, the the singer Bjork, her actual name is Bjork Goodman's daughter. And because her dad's name is Goodman. Goodman. She's the daughter of Goodman. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, and in Hebrew, it would have been person Ben or Bat, meaning son or daughter of their father's name or mother's right. name or both, depending on who was raising them and things like that. But at any rate, in the late 1800s or, uh, sorry, late 18th century, uh, the, when the name was passed, all these people were required to choose names and they, some of them chose names for what they did, but a lot of them just chose names that seemed fancy or nice. <laughs> and that's why you get so many Goldsteins and oh, Silversteins and things like interesting. that. Interesting. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that there was that many no. goldsmiths or whatever in the population. Yeah. It's that they were getting to pick. And so they're like, might as well pick one nice. And I don't feel super emotionally attached to it because it's just the government asking that I. Yeah, nobody. Who cares about this? This is nonsense. Yeah. And I'm, and some people picked them as jokes. Oh, no. Some people picked them like all these kinds of things. No. All these <laughs> names happened. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's awesome. A lot of, a lot of uh, English names we don't realize are those like oh a lot of them like are actually yeah occupational like there's super obvious ones like baker and cook and smith like no but there's a lot of them that are less obvious parker keeper of parks yeah well that's a cool one carter operator of carts <laughs> i mean and it sounds like a like a joke but it's like yeah that's where the name carter was your name someone who operated a cart you were a carter yeah falconer you're carter was if someone a falconer was a keeper keeper of falcons yeah, right. I mean, I think Falconer is still a name we use. Well, today, Falconer right? spelled like Falk, but like F A U L K, like Falconer. oh, like Faulkner. Yeah, like, like the like William Faulkner. Yeah, and that that it's because of the the just how old the name is, it came right. from people of Falcons or Turner, someone who turns the lead. Like, there's all these names you just we hear it's the last name Parker. You don't think, even though it's an E R, it's like an it's an of the form of Baker or whatever. Yeah, I think when it when it when it ends up being like spelled differently, or it's been parts of it have been kind of chopped off over time, that kind of thing. I think that's when. Oh man, cheese man, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked up a list of these. These are so fun. Yeah, there's some pretty good ones. Um, I have this. I'll what put it in the show corker? notes. Corker. What was which? Corker. I mean, probably made cork or cork yeah, for just making cork. Yeah, and there's lots of ones that have that are like well-known if you happen to know that occupation like cooper is a really common last name right they make cooper they make barrels right yeah they make make barrels but i don't think most people know that i think that's kind of an uncommon term these days yeah right? exactly you don't need you don't need an entire occupational field of barrel making there's a, a, a major league baseball pitcher in the food place for the san francisco giants out here whose name is madison Bumgarner. sure and that means tree gardener Ah, that's interesting. I've definitely heard that last name and seen that last name is relatively common, uh, but yeah. it, it did not even occur to me, the gardener part, that it could be. Yeah, that's a cool one. Huh. And apparently Metcalf, which is a yeah, relatively common last name, um, was a, a herdsman. A herdsman. Yeah. Cool. But these names, I mean, like just from old English or whatever, because England um, locked down, uh, they were a little more gung ho on the let's re- get everyone to register their name so we can keep track of who owes what taxes. Um, they got on that a lot earlier in the process. So you got a bunch of well, old English names locked down before. So, in fact, 
f- fun fact in 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 post Norman France conquest of England, there were only a very few names that anyone was naming their kids. It was basically William for men, Robert sometimes, and then Eleanor mostly for women. Okay. And there were so many Williams that it kind of led to last names because uh, like at one point... Right. It's like, I, of course you're William. Everyone's William. In the king's court, there were 113 knights and 111 <laughs> of them were named William. So it, it had to be like William of this place, William the whatever, William who did this because there's just everyone was... William the Conqueror. Everyone's William. So which William Everyone was named William. Yeah. Uh, everyone was William. Uh, that's good. There's yeah, a couple... Um, Williams from here from hell to breakfast, Alan, as the saying goes. So yeah, I figured uh, you did a middle name fact. I had to go into the list. Now we've got a last name fact. And I got a last. So now we need a first name fact. I'm gonna fail you because <laughs> I don't have a first name fact. We gotta get the combo. I'm so sorry. I wish we would have. See if if Alan and I told each other these facts in ahead of time, you would get things like that. But it would also just feel so phony. You, um, there's an article. This this fact about the Galileo and the the last names came from. Uh, a listener on Twitter, Andrew Hart, sent it in the, a Slate oh. article, which is quite interesting, which has some more details and stuff like that. Um, so I'll link that up in the show notes. Cool. Speaking of of Twitter, we are currently running a hilariously awesome poll on uh, the Fun Fact FM Twitter, which will be long over by the time that you any of you hear this, but it will inform at least a month of your lives. So I would recommend going and seeing what the results were. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. We're getting we're taking the audience opinions about who should fill in uh arik is going to be uh on baby duty for uh my vote is losing right now Uh, i feel i'm a little disappointed that so far no one has voted that you should be replaced with the uh, alchemist johan becker who invented the phlogiston theory uh i feel like he should at least be competitive with the non-existent member of the bundestag uh who is who i voted for yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but currently, as of as of right now, uh, Lil Nas the Tenth is the uh, is the leader. <laughs> so we'll have to get him on the show. I wanted Lil Nas the Ninth. Well, but... I don't know if he's available, but we'll see. You know, actually, honestly, he might be cheaper. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. I heard you can get a little discount. Yeah, but we'll, you know, we'll see. It's it. an old model. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, fun fact: supposedly, there is a maximum number of people one can comfortably maintain stable social relationships with. Yes, I have heard about this in a couple contexts, and I've kind of seen it. I feel like I have that sort of folk, folky wisdom observation of this phenomena. Well, so why don't you take a guess? What do you think the number is? Well, I'd use 150. That's that's exactly right. So you have heard this before, though. Yeah, so the, the way I was exposed to this idea was it being called Dunbar's number. Yeah, Dunbar's number. Yeah, and the the uh, also the monkey sphere. The monkeys. Oh, just like from observing monkeys, and this, that's how many monkeys will kind of work together as a group before they split off. Well, yeah. So what happened was that in the 1990s, a British anthropologist named Robin Dunbar found a correlation between primate brain size and average social group size. Okay, so as we get bigger brains, we're able to work together with more people, or like socially interact with more people. Before our brain has to be like, that's another tribe. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So the way that Dunbar explained it is the number of people you would not feel embarrassed about joining uninvited for a drink if you happen to bump into them at a ah, bar. That's interesting. That's interesting. Is, I, find, I think that's really interesting because like that's very a specific. Yeah, that's a very specific level of friendship, right? 
I wouldn't describe that as a friend necessarily. No, but like I, I was trying to describe this properly. I had a blog post recently where I was talking about an interaction I had at a conference and I wanted a word for someone that is better than an acquaintance because I have hundreds of acquaintances, like everyone I went to high school with and all the people I went to university with and everyone I ever work with, they're all acquaintances. Like I have met them and I would recognize them and I could talk to them, but I wanted something in between acquaintance, but not necessarily like friend i guess but this person was definitely in that zone where if i saw them in a bar i would would not feel like i needed to be invited to talk to them at the bar yeah yeah so i yeah i think a lot about this actually i think you and i've had a number of conversations over the time we've been friends about this subject like what makes a friend what's an acquaintance what's a good friend what 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 are you know what any of these things mean i do think that 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 this particular definition is interesting because there are, I have acquaintances who I would not necessarily feel comfortable just sidling up to and being like, okay, I know the next couple hours of us talking to each other are going to be like stress-free. Right. I mean, I, I think obviously the, the more you get and get in the head of this definition, the more complicated it gets in that each person is more or less comfortable chatting with people that they don't know that well. <laughs> so there's that too. Well, no, that, yeah, that's for sure true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. But like, I guess, you know, like, are you confident that there will be an easy back and forth conversation that will not require generating like will not have awkward moments and will not require generating are you comfortable in silence with each other you know those kinds of things sure yeah and i think that everybody has like i said different different settings on that but this idea that there's a maximum number of people that you can have a certain level of social uh connectiveness and comfort with and that over but they're both in the personal way where they're over your life that people will kind of enter and leave that pool kind of necessarily. You can't just have, you don't just accumulate friends linearly as you get older. I have, oh, I had a hundred friends and now I have 200. And now I have 500. And now I have a thousand, right? Obviously some people. No, yeah, it doesn't scale. It doesn't scale that way. But then also the place where I, I personally find it really interesting because it applies to the things I care about in my job is the way that that affects an organization in that even if 150 right. people are not necessarily whether or not they're friends or personal is one thing but there's another kind of independent layer which is how you feel like a unit with a group of people in a company so if you're of a um, there's kind of multiple layers of it but like if you feel like you're on a team and you're working closely with people like people talk about this can you feed your team with two pizzas like you have a five-person team or whatever that's one layer of feeling like you're in a group but then there's a second um, and sometimes kind of more problematic layer at that roughly 150 person size company where any more than that, and you don't really have one company anymore, you end up with two companies and then you get internal politics yes. where it's like people have fiefdoms and people, you start to get some people who want the other part of the company to fail because those jerks in whatever, in whatever, the, <laughs> oh, the Android group or the semiconductor group or the whatever, the other people that are too numerous for me to feel like they're part of my group. And I can't, and I just am incapable of understanding the motivations and context and even knowing the names of probably of 150 people at my company. And so eventually you kind of have to segregate mentally and emotionally as like, okay, well, there's other people and they're not part of my mental tribe or whatever. Yeah. Um, So that's why I find that numbers number thing really interesting. And especially when I'm trying to understand another company, whether it's because I'm their customer or because I'm going to work with them, 
um, is how bi- how many people are your company? And if they're say, oh, we're pretty small, we're only 300 people, I'm like, um, you're, you are probably growing really fast if you think that you are still small because you stop being small at 150 and they, they <laughs> behave really differently at a 100-person company versus a 300-person company. Did you ever read the, the Malcolm Gladwell Tipping Point book? I think I own it, but then I... Around the time uh, I yes. got the book, I One got a Kindle, and then now I'm like Kindle exclusive, so I have this paper book that I... That you've never opened. I've read one or two of his books. Okay. I've never read any of his books. And I know that he has a reputation for making interesting stories and then using facty anecdotes to support the stories that he has decided to tell, which is an interesting uh skill but then you have to be a little careful how much you consume of that because your brain can get a little polluted with stories that maybe don't always reflect reality (laughs) (laughs) well uh, apparently in in that book which i've heard of for years but never read that he describes the company that makes gore-tex okay is this one of the holacracy kind of things i have no idea but i don't even know what that word means okay we'll get to that one but by by tr- by trial and error, supposedly, the leadership in that company discovered that if more than 150 employees were working together in one building, they would have social problems. Mm, interesting. And so they started building company buildings with a limit of 150 employees and only 150 parking spaces. And when the parking spaces were filled, they would build another 150-person uh, employee building in only short distances apart. But, like, they would just keep doing that. Right, because they, they were kind of acknowledging that there would be these units whether they liked it or not so they might as well just define them yeah yeah exactly it is interesting to note though that other sociologists have suggested other numbers that are bigger sure i think the biggest one i saw was 290 which seems like a lot yeah but i mean that's an interesting sign though when you have different people trying to quantify this really fuzzy thing and different sociologists are coming to numbers that are within double of each other right yeah like that implies that there's an actual phenomena that really were they're observing they're probably just defining it a little differently but you see like you see it like one of the things that i find really reinforcing with one of these sociology theories are always hard to like figure out how much you want to trust it and how much you want to make decisions based on something that's hard to like prove prove you can't it's hard to be like, oh, we're going to build two organizations with experimentally and we're going to try 100 and 110 and 120 and 130, but filled <laughs> with the same people, right? It's like very, right. very difficult to be fully scientific about it. But um, you see over time, once you're watching for it, you see this structure. And so one example is in the game industry, uh, you often have game teams and they'll grow. And this will happen in other uh, development software um personal software industry but for games it's often easier to see i think because of the way game teams kind of assemble ship a thing and then stop but you'll find the game teams often will grow to 150 and then if they need to get bigger than 150 sometimes they'll get a bit bigger than that but they as soon as they get much bigger than 150 then they have this like a cell division in instinct where it's like kind of inevitably what's going to start to happen is or tends to happen in my observation is that when a game team gets more than 150 people then either uh, they will have a problem and they will end up downsizing or they'll end up splitting off the team into two parts or often what like the big studios like activision and ea do is they'll actually cobble together because like what happens is you're trying to make a bigger and bigger game and you're like okay we have a 150 person team but we want to make a bigger game or we want to ship faster so let's put 250 people on this but that like really tends to not 
be very stable or work ah, super well. The mythical man month. The mythical man month. But the mythical man month works way better if you're like, okay, we have 75 people. We want to hire up to 150 so we can get more done or do or go faster, especially get more done. It doesn't work as well with go faster, but you can get more done with 150 people than 75 people on a game team for sure. Not double, but more. But then if you say, okay, well, let's double it again to 300, then you sometimes like get less done. <laughs> <laughs> and right. so what um a lot of modern studios have been doing and this has other trade-offs but they'll have uh a bunch of 150 ish or somewhere in between 50 and 200 person studios spread around sometimes in different countries often like this was an acquisition and this was founded by this team or whatever and they will take parts of the game okay that makes sense so so like 100 people in uh, working in Ontario are doing the multiplayer and then 150 people in Vancouver are doing the single player. And there's actually 50 other people doing, you know, stuff for in-app purchase in Europe. And there are three different organizations that have narrow interfaces of that. They need to integrate between each other, between each other, but they are very clear that like we are part of Bioware, uh, South or whatever. And that's, who we are and that's what we do and we will succeed or fail and be judged as a group and obviously we want the overall game to succeed but we have a coherent within ourselves identity and, and that seems to be how they're scaling it out or at least the companies that are being profitable a lot of them are scaling out that way rather than saying okay we're just going to put 600 people because like making a modern triple a game is like ridiculously complicated and then oh, yeah. i mean the credits roll forever. Oh my god, the amount of art and everything is yeah, a movie too. Impressive. I mean, yeah, like yeah. an Avengers type movie or something like that. And the same thing you can see in the credits for those movies too. The same thing. It just goes forever, but they're all like all these different companies yes. they've they've hired yes. and stuff. It, it's interesting because Dunbar suggested that that the 150 would only be the mean number if the groups had a very high incentive to remain together. Right. So kind of implying that it's like an upper bound. Right. Well, just because apparently at that level of cohesion, he speculated that. As much as 42% of the group time would be devoted to social grooming. Well, a.k.a. communication overhead. And if you've ever worked in a large company. Exactly. Right. So you really have to have you can only do it typically for a specific period of time and a specific goal. Yes. And then it starts to kind of disperse them sort of naturally i think a lot of people really especially people who have only worked at small companies or they've worked at as like the individual contributor sort of like bottom uh actually does stuff layer of a very large company it's often invisible the ridiculous percentage of effort a big company spends on communication and still sucks communication <laughs> <laughs> because of the exponential interaction okay we have ten thousand employees well we have ten thousand times ten thousand different potential interactions of everyone to everyone well and the other problem too is that they tend to assign managers to far too many direct reports well and then they do that for a very specific reason which is that the more layers in the organization in between the person making the strategy at the very top and the people actually doing the stuff the more communication holes there are Right. And so, yes, but at the same time, one person cannot possibly manage that ma- that number of social complexity, like the, the graph of all the possible combinations just gets too complicated after like five people or something. Yeah. So you have this very unpleasant trade off that you don't that both sides suck of the, the organization where you have someone who only has five is only managing five people. And so they can really, really support those people and they can listen to them and give them everything they need and be really great at communicating with them. But it is hard for them to communicate down to those people because you're in a really, really deep organization because they report to someone with five reports who reports to someone with five reports who reports to someone with five reports all the way in a super long chain. 
Yeah, it gets very hard to scale. Yeah, or yeah. you have someone with 20 reports who you can never get any attention from them or you can rarely get attention from them unless something is on fire or there's a big problem. But if you do get attention to them from them, they report to the CEO who has 20 reports. Yeah, yeah, or at best there's two or three people in between. Yeah, if there's 20 at each layer. Apple you have, or something like that. Yeah, and so, well, I mean, like... Well, Actually, at Apple, you have 20 at each layer and 20 layers, which is like the worst of all possible worlds, right? Well, I mean, the size of the company, you inevitably get to some degree, but you also have this, like, tree rotation thing where more important... Pro- Apple's pretty good at this, but I'll, most companies do this to at least to some degree. The more critical projects and, like, uh, really important new product development or products that are really... Uh, in the main line of the business, like uh, developing the new iPhone uh, operating system or whatever, will be structured in a way that there is less depth and they're closer to the top, um, mm. as opposed to like the people mm. who are in like uh, stocking the re- the back room of the retail mm. are going to have more layers. And so, like yeah. when I started Apple, I don't remember there was a certain number of layers in between me and Steve Jobs, like four layers maybe. But then, sure, at one point. And but and it's a much bigger company now. But at one point, what happened is we got put onto this iPad prototype, which we didn't know would be called the iPad. But we were we were working on this like special project that was considered important. And so our org chart kind of collapsed and shrunk, where my boss's boss was basically getting direct re- requests from Steve Jobs. And so the number of layers like decreased by two, basically yeah. at one point, where it would be like okay, something would go from Steve to to someone and then it would go to me not obviously not interacting with steve jobs in any way but like the because it was a super important thing that was being told like this is really important and if steve jobs said this thing then we're gonna structure our organization because that's what he's paying attention to that he can get that communication path really fast and really short yeah but just for some period of time exactly temporarily and at the consequence meaning that the company can't multitask like you, that level of execution at a company that size can't be done to every single product all the way along the line. And so when you, which you can totally see, you can totally, yeah. of course, see, and that's true for any company, but it yeah. makes it a little, it's, it's hard when you hear on a podcast or something and it's like, like, Oh, well they need to do this level of execution on every, literally every single product. And it's like, absolutely. That would be great. And you should try <laughs> to hold yourself to that level. Yeah. But one of the things that is super effective at, really exceeding the corporate norm in execution is reducing those layers of of communication and really being like this is the vision and then trying to basically minimize that complexity of of communication and the other way you can do it is by having really small teams so you have for years the mail team was three people like that worked on the mail app that like hundreds of millions of people were using and that was really probably not very fair to them because they were working on slower time and all this kind of thing. It's like, <laughs> but it's like that is, has a bunch of negative trade-offs, but one of the big advantages of that is that they probably knew all of the bugs and the situations with all of the, like they were extremely fast and really nimble at changing that product because they totally understood it. And so I suppose if you have 40 people and then it's like, where did this bug come from? Well, maybe that's intended behavior. Well, who changed that? And it's like, or if you have 300 people. Yeah, or 300 or 3,000 or whatever, right? So two two more things about this. So one is that I just really love the name Monkey Sphere. <laughs> yeah, this is just inherently good. <laughs> that's that's inherently good. And then the other thing is that apparently much, much later, so that happened in the 90s, like 1990 or something like that. And then in 2018, the same guy it wrote a different article where he suggested that, uh, that, there, that most people have an inner core of about five people 
to whom they devote about 40% of their time to, hmm. and 10 more people to whom they devote about another 20%, and about two-thirds of their time gets devoted to just 15 people. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, is that is that segregating out like work and personal, or is that everything? Social time. This is social time. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of like kind of quickly thinking through in my head, and then also like as a a parent with a young child and it's like social time <laughs> yeah you devote a hundred percent of your time to one person yeah, i mean if you, but count... you do get to hear hilarious you know my little pony stories so that's true if that counts then it's all worth it more than 50 percent of my socialization time is with a three-year-old <laughs> explains a lot no i'm just, <laughs> just apparently kidding. it has a measurable effect on the vocabulary of adults when you have is your vocabulary worse right now According to, I think this podcast is keeping it good. <laughs> yeah, in one week, lots of word facts. Um, yeah. But apparently, according to a study I read years ago, uh, the more uh, the the vocabulary and reading level and complexity of the vocabulary that people use is correlated with the average age of the family members in the household. Um, so, if you have a bunch of young kids all in the house, then you're you'll get into the habit of making simpler sentences huh and that, that seems plausible fade off as they grow yeah that seems plausible you're almost re regrowing again with the person that you're whoever is the sort of the you know weakest link on that chain yeah and when i read this study i was like in university and i was like oh man i don't want to have kids and get dumber but then as an, as <laughs> an adult i'm like no you just get in the habit of explaining things in a more straightforward way um, yeah i can't wait personally i'm very 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 happy i to, to be i work i don't remember what it was there's was something that someone called me out on saying they're like why do you always say that phrase it that way i'm like oh actually that's just me basically it's an inside joke in between me and the three-year-old that she says it that way and then i say it that way and then it like leaks into my, my work commentary <laughs> That's that's wonderful. Yeah. But yeah, it's a real thing. The complexity of groups and social yeah. social and work it's context and that people often uh underestimate how much adding more just it's gonna either push other people out of that group or it's gonna cause problems, like you say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's endlessly fascinating, I think, the way that we organize ourselves. Yeah. Or fail to. Or complete or usually just completely fail to. Yeah. Follow up. We've got some follow up with Arik and Allen. With Arik and Allen. Wait, that's the SVU music. That implies a very different vibe than I think for follow up. Just the ice, the ice tea memes where he's like describing whatever drugs the kids are into. Oh, okay. Have people seen that? This so so. There's this generator. Have you seen this one? I think so, but link it up. Bot. Oh no, it's not a generator, it's a bot. Uh oh, okay. Okay, here we go. Okay, okay, okay. Bot. Okay. <laughs> it's called baseball puddles. Kids try it at parties. Next thing they know, they're on YouTube getting paid to slow dance with breakfast cereal. Exactly, yeah. So it's this bot that just generates um <laughs> which just generates the uh I'm not sure it's still rang, but it, yeah, it just generates these like ice tea is explaining uh, a, what the kids what are. the kids are up to these days yeah <laughs> dealers are calling it bumblebee walrus it's made from hot sauce and ambient it's just like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> possible. 
It's just amazing. <laughs> what else? <laughs> um, a quick return to RSI Corner, uh, which has been my ongoing um, sort of exploration of what I can do to stay in shape such that I can keep using a computer and editing podcasts and, you know, having a job and all that fun stuff. Um, we uh, should link up uh, episode 340 of Accidental Tech Podcast, You Are a Computer Athlete, in which John Syracuse, as he often does, gave me an awesome piece of thought technology, which is specifically that, the idea of thinking about your preparation and whatever stretches or exercises or adaptations you're doing to be able to sit in this bizarre posture for eight or 10 or more hours a day uh, doing your work on a computer, that that's like, if, you, if you're going to take that seriously and that's your job and that's how you survive in the world, um, then you should think of yourself as, you know, something more akin to a computer athlete as opposed to, why is my body like complaining about this? I'm just sitting here. Um, and it's like a pretty unusual thing to do. And it's something that you should get yourself into the mindset of, of needing to actually do ongoing maintenance to your body to be able to, to stay healthy doing that. So that's kind of come from both that idea from, from that episode of ATP. And then also uh, I've been seeing a physiotherapist every couple of weeks and she's been like teaching exercises and checking out specific things. And actually something that also was mentioned in that episode is something that I learned about my own self is that if there are certain muscles that get very strong from your posture, then they can overpower other, other muscles that would normally sort of compensate and then that can really end up causing like kind of a chain down the road where i was like oh i have this pain in my wrist and the, the physiotherapist is like oh that's interesting and she kind of pokes my wrist a little bit and then she comes around to my back and she's like oh well there's your problem uh, and it's in the shoulder blades um and so that's something that you know um as they said on the show a gp isn't necessarily going to say that they're probably going to say here take some advil and then just slowly destroy your body until you can't type anymore um but finding someone who can actually help figure that stuff out and then you know getting into the mentality of doing some you know a few minutes a day of stretches and exercises is a huge a huge win i'm not one to t- to say i told you so except when i do and i <laughs> and i will you told me to take a break which is completely unreasonable and I will say that John also pointed out on that episode that if something is literally hurting, the best possible thing you can do is stop doing that thing. That is true. Right. That is true. Until it stops hurting. Yeah. So I think that that is just generally, yes, you're right, that it's important to understand the link between different pieces of your body. Yes, you're right, that that inflammation can be caused by your diet. Yes, it's true that you can get different things. But the number one thing is if something is hurting, try to find the awareness that it's hurting and stop doing it. And it's, it's, it's hard to do. Like it really is like if you're playing, if you're someone who plays video games, you're playing some video game and you're really into it. And then it's like, ah, I'm, I just want to finish this thing. And then you're playing for another four hours and you're hurting the whole time. And you know, once your body is sending you those pain signals, it's because your body is telling you, Hey dummy, stop doing this. And when you keep doing it, eventually your body's like, okay, well you broke me now. Yeah. So. When well, then the kind of more grown, well, not the video games are not grown up, but the more grown up version of that is the, <laughs> hey, I need to finish this report or email or right. blog post or whatever, and I'm getting mild pain, but it's like, hey, right. I need to do this before I leave today, and I quote, quote, need to. You don't really need no to. No blog probably. post is worth it. No blog post is worth it. Um, but yeah. the that idea of stopping when it hurts is something that I feel like I've kind of fully absorbed, and that's why I find this next layer up of thinking of your body is something that you need to be continually doing maintenance on in order to be able to not hurt when you're doing some of the things you want to do, uh, is kind of the next level up for my, for my kind of, yeah. Anyway. Yep. Yep. Finally this, uh, this week we've got 
some Monopoly follow-up, which is uh, with two things. One, uh, my friend James, who runs the a phenomenal comic book shop in San Francisco called Ice Stop Comics. If you're in the San Francisco area, I highly recommend it. He pointed out to me that one thing I didn't mention when I was talking about the Landlord's game is that in the 70s, there was a game called Anti-Monopoly published, which was published by a San Francisco State University professor in response to Monopoly. Okay. And in Anti-Monopoly, the game begins with the board in a monopolized state, basically the the end of Monopoly. Okay. And the goal is that you take the role of federal caseworkers bringing indictments against monopolized businesses <laughs> in an attempt to return to a free market. Okay. <laughs> in, in 1974, Parker Brothers sued him for the Monopoly name, but while he was doing his his defense, he learned about all the stuff I, I talked about about the history of Monopoly and based his defense on the on the idea that it was already in the public domain. Okay. And the case drug on for years. The game was just called Anti for a while, but eventually they they reached a settlement where he could continue to use the name Anti Monopoly. Huh. So that's thing number one. And thing number two is that there's been a recent release or recent discussion at least of uh, a Hasbro version of the game called Monopoly Socialism. Yeah, I saw this, and it's like, which it sounds interesting at first. You're like, hey, that might could be. <laughs> it is not. Um, I would say it's not. Uh, <laughs> looks like total trash. I would say it's not an intellectually honest take on what no. socialism might mean. The cover of the the cover of the box <laughs> says, "Winning is for capitalists." Yeah. So Which that kind of gives you the idea of the rude. everything that also it, <laughs> from what I was kind of briefly reading about this socialist version of Monopoly, it completely merges the idea of socialism with the idea of like modern progressive politics. So it's like but and then also then just decides that yeah, it's veganism yeah and, it's you know, like you've else. become vegan against your will lose ten dollars or whatever and like oh you get you go to jail for using a, pl- a plastic straw <laughs> like yeah it's like the nightmare that like people who only watch fox news think is gonna happen yeah, at some yeah point, exactly. right it's it's that that's what that is so yeah so just just uh just oh and also just as a random aside apparently in germany and i asked my wife and she she does not know about this but according to the anti-monopoly wikipedia page in Germany, the Monopoly, the original game, was is very popular. Two more versions of Anti-Monopoly were created, and one of them involves squatters taking over parts of the town, and the other one involves pollution. So it all it all sounds great to me. I feel like, um, I don't know, maybe this is something that would be hard to model, but I feel like there could be an interesting game around pollution and, like, tragedy of the commons and, like... I don't know. I feel like there might be an interesting mechanic there. Well, maybe Okopoli is the uh, is that game. <laughs> we don't know. We may never know. We may never know. Or maybe we'll play it just yeah. after we play the Landlord's game. Yeah. And eat our Impossible Burgers. Which you were saying is are actually <laughs> in existence now. I have turned down so many Impossible oh, Burgers man. because I want I, I want to do it with you. I feel like I, there's something about them coming kind to of Canada. Um, Fun fact. The due date for my child is coming very soon. Yeah, what, like three weeks, two weeks, four weeks? I think we're 25 days is my memory, my rememberings. Uh, so you're in that zone where the, the we were talking, you and I were talking at least about that you were getting into this kind of bell curve where people think about a due date as a very specific day, but it's actually the due zone. <laughs> I'm in the due zone. You're in the due zone where... Not know, the mountain due zone. That's a very different zone. Do the due um i, I, I think did the do you did the do it's been done and Pro- now probably nine months later <laughs> <laughs> when one mountain dew loves another mountain dew very, very much, much. 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, at this point, once you get to be in the like m- month before and then the kind of two weeks after the due date, you kind of have this bell curve. Yeah, I think we're technically, yeah, we're in that zone where 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 it could happen at any moment. Because once you get to eight months, like the baby's pretty much fully baked. Like, yeah, yeah, I think at this point it would be fine. It's mostly just sleeping and growing at this point. Yeah, which I'm happy for it to do for as long, reasonably speaking, as it wants. I mean, it's it's just a little bit, you know, there's more impact on on the mother, the fact that the baby is continuing to grow on the inside. Right. For me, it's like let's just. Although she's very much at the moment, like you can keep. Oh, okay. She's she's doing uh, okay. Percolating right now. Yeah, she's not yeah, table she's, yet. No, she's not ready for for it either. So we're both like, just just stay in there a little bit longer. It'll be cool. Yeah, that's fine. Ellie was born six weeks early, so she was a little bit on the. the still need a little more time in the. <sighs> wow, she wasn't I don't quite even in remember the, that. Yeah, so that would have been you. Or the baby would have been born two weeks ago to you. That's that's crazy. And she was very right small. She was like four pounds. Yeah, that's that's completely crazy to me yeah. right now. But I mean, when when we spent a few days in the hospital, just them getting her so that she was strong enough that she could feed, and then we just kind of brought her home, and she just like slept the crap out of everything, constantly sleeping. Then an she didn't have to be in the sleep. NICU. She was in the NICU for five days, and then oh, okay. yeah. we stayed in a like a little mother baby unit in the hospital. It's basically mm. just. Like, uh, you get a little room, and then they just can watch you and help you if they need to, and they kind of watch the baby and make sure they've reached a point where they are sure you're good to go home. Um, but that was actually really nice, because then we had training wheels with learning, like, diapers and washing her and all that kind of stuff, whereas if she was fully term and there was no complications, they'd be a little bit more like, all right, bye. And so by the time we got home, she was like four pounds and still weeks early, but I had a handle and all the things that needed doing so it was just kind of like yeah yep sleep feed sleep feed sleep feed seems like yeah i I, I will say i've heard that that like you it's a different experience of coming home you're not as like you've had some time to get it used to the idea you've had more sleep and such and such so Mm. you're more like in some ways a friend of mine just had went through a similar experience and he thought it actually helped in some ways prepare him yeah i don't fully i I don't fully i can't compare um yeah but i felt like it did help in some ways <laughs> by the way speaking of which i really really got a kick out of your uh you went on a little mini tweet situation with uh with her <laughs> my little pony exposure to my little pony which i have not seen but i thoroughly enjoyed the questions that she that she asked you they were great and i couldn't yeah. i couldn't really convey and the only way i could think of to convey the relentlessness of them was to tweet multiple questions all just in a row like that and then follow up with it but like it was still going today like it's kind of like <laughs> calmed down a bit it's like she'll ask questions about other things and she'll go and do something and then she'll come back and ask more questions but uh i think my favorite one is was the night pony so <laughs> sorry and she said oh sorry i'm sorry for being evil i won't do that again because number one that's amazing and number two oh my god your child is canadian <laughs> like good lord <laughs> uh i didn't even thought about it from the canadian context yeah you are raising that kid canadian yeah definitely when she like narrates the mental like she's very fascinated right now with other people's kind of like mental dialogue like what are other people feeling and to the point that she'll walk up to people in the store and say what are you feeling <laughs> that's awesome and people are like uh <laughs> she's like a weird little mini counselor she's just going around like everybody doing okay over here yeah. like 
How's it going? Can I help? And mo- often people are like, oh, I'm good. How are you? But sometimes you can see somebody's eyes go wide and they're like, uh, well, I mean, uh, right. Cause, cause they're, yeah. There's like, I don't, I don't, what, what, do I, what do I do now? And they have an answer, but like a three-year-old doesn't going to engage with, <laughs> well, you know, I have uh, some concerns about my dad and blah, blah. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. So I need to get through this. Don't like let your child die period mm-hmm. so that I can get to that. Period. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, that's the period I'm excited about. I mean, you know, Daria really likes babies, and I really am. I mean, babies are fine, but I'm more like interested in like chatting with little kids because they just have such a weird sense of how anything works, and I find it fascinating. Yeah, it's great. I do very much enjoy that. I like answering questions. One thing that I yeah, I, we both like answering questions. That's the thing. Like, well, we're so here. Sure. Like, I love this phase of like a million questions because I will have answers. I also think that. I I had thought before she was born about the fact that the parent as oracle was sort of a position of that was always interesting is like kids will ask parents questions and then the parents answer to the best of their ability. And then as far as a yeah. little kid knows, the parent knows everything basically. But in right. the internet age, the kids could in theory look up the thing themselves and like there mm. is a source of truth as opposed to parents just guessing or whatever. But that's mm. actually something that I just kind of automatically incorporated as a sort of 30 something person in 2019 is she'll ask a question I don't know the answer to. And I'll say, let's find out. And then we find out the answer. Well, see, I already had that experience. Maybe I'm atypical, but even as a child, my mom had quite an extensive library and likes to research things. Mm -hmm. So I would be like, well, what, what about this? And then she'd be like, I don't, I don't know. Let's go find out. And then I would be really annoyed and be like, I don't want to know that no, badly. This is way if you don't too much know. work. And okay. Oh my God. Okay. We're checking out books right now. <laughs> like, what are we doing? But in looking back on it now, that's, I think that's so great. So yeah, my plan, it, I, I do not vibe with the parents who are like, I'm going to make something up or I'm going to make you feel bad for asking. I'm just going to like say, yeah, I don't know. Let's figure, let's find out. Let's learn together because the main thing, the other thing that that helps with is that you're right. The kid could theoretically look it up on the Internet. But I've learned from like watching people that not everyone knows how to search for things on the Internet. Yeah, like I can give Ellie like a Safari search box, but she's probably not going to know that she needs to type my little pony wiki episode three Fluttershy. Yeah. Plus, I don't think she can spell or type <laughs> so like, i think there's some other there's some other problems I'm, I'm just saying i can transfer my my googling skills down to the next generation yeah you gotta pass them on i'm gonna pass on my duck duck going skills of course <laughs> well they'll they'll duel off in the next generation 